Here's something we hear all the time. If only more people knew about environmental problems, then they would certainly act in some ecologically beneficial way. The problem is, it's not true. We're now deluged with data about the climate crisis, and yet this abundance of available environmental information has not led to an abundance of environmental action. This deficit model of climate communication is flawed. Even though scientists, environmentalists, and other proponents of climate action continue to speak and act as if people would do more if they just knew more about the climate crisis and understood the science of climate change. Heather Hauser writes about environmental ideas and themes in art, literature, culture, and the humanities. Her work blossoms with keen insights about the importance of culture in confronting ecological crisis. I mean, especially if you are an environmentalist, you pay attention to these issues. But really, even if you're, you know, you're not, there's a lot, just so much, like, information coming at us about, say, um, the percentage of extinct mammals, right? How many mammal uh, species are extinct or bird species are extinct? Um, all the data about climate crisis, whether it's, like, warming temperatures, um, ocean acidification, you know, how much of a the um, ice sheet has melted. You know, it's all, all this data. It's like, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, what do you do with that? I mean, what do you do with that, not only as a way to understand the phenomena at maybe a, you know, objective or straightforward level, but what do you do with that emotionally if you're an artist or communicator? I'm John Fiege, and this is Chrysalis. Heather Hauser is professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin. I met her many years ago in Austin when I was developing a film about dance and environmental justice. Heather's both a dancer and an environmental humanities scholar. Our conversation explores climate information overload, the idea of what she calls ecosickness in literature, the thorny topic of human population size, and whether artists should reject or rework artistic tools of the past that might be tainted by colonialism, racism, or other forms of oppression. Here is Heather Hauser. So I'd like to start with an essay you're working on about your childhood, which you shared with me. Uh, in this piece, you talk about the instability of your upbringing, from your parents' rocky marriage to their financial woes, and the constant moves that resulted. You moved about 13 times in your childhood, largely around the Poconos region of Pennsylvania, I think, um, and to other states as well. In the midst of that instability and constant shifting ground, as you call it, you found a sense of stability, grounding, and joy in dance. Uh, you write, at this age, I hadn't yet met the idea of the plateau or of the precipitous fall. This was the time for the joy of movement, the satisfactions of devotion and a belief that the alchemy of body, space, music, and time can make you other than who you are and where you came from. I love this idea of seeing your childhood and who you became through this lens of dance. Can you talk more about where you come from and maybe what your relationship to the rest of nature was as a child and how this alchemy of body, space, music, and time led to your interest in the environment? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I was born in the Poconos region of Pennsylvania, which is in the northeast part of the state, right along the New Jersey border. And 
if you know it at all, you likely know it as a tourist destination for <laughs> urbanites. Um, you know, when this was, I should say, I was born there in 1979 and, and grew up there um, with one one gap when I lived in the Massachusetts, but I lived there from 1979 to 1997. So I think things have changed, but back then... It was certainly, um, there were a lot of resorts, um, honeymoon destinations, summer camps. So a large tourist influx from New York and New Jersey and Philadelphia. But um, then there were the locals <laughs> like myself. Um, so it was a place of abundant um, nature, I would say. You know, the Appalachian Trail ended and started there. Um, lots of lakes, um, it's a hardwood forest area, lots of ponds and creeks, or as I say in that essay, cricks, my Grammy and Happy <laughs> said. Um, I didn't pick that up, but that's what parts of my family called creeks. Uh-huh. But that was actually not my family's orientation. So I lived in this place with so many things I now wish were right outside my door. Right. And of course, right. Austin, Texas has, has its own um, beautiful environments, but... I honestly did none of that. <laughs> I mean, there was one swimming hole we would go to called the 40-foot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a 40-foot jump, which mm-hmm. I did not do because I was afraid of heights. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember swimming in the lakes or the creeks. I, aside from that, um, we never went on hikes except for maybe, you know, walks in the woods near our house um, or houses since there were many of them. So that relationship that I now have, like the appreciation and really the need to be outside um, is is something that developed really in my college years when I lived in Portland, Oregon. Um, when I think about dance in the environment, personally, in, in my relation to it is about movement. Um, being able to move in space, I think, is one of the continuities from my dance persona to my like environmental appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though those mm-hmm. were completely divorced uh, or separate, just didn't really exist when I was a kid, I, I feel that continuity now. Right, right. And, you know, when you were in the Poconos area as a child, did you have a, did you have a sense of people from the cities coming there as like a location of nature and, and looking for this kind of pristine wilderness experience. Did, did you have a sense of that? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, this is, I I was very hard on the place when I lived there. I mean, I really wanted out. Um, I went almost as far as you could go within the uni- continental United <laughs> States. Um, when I went to college, um, kind of foolishly to go to a a private liberal arts college across the country, but it worked out okay in the end. Um, But I did not, I mean, I I definitely knew that people were coming to the Poconos for that experience of nature and wilderness. And um, you would, quite honest, I interacted a lot with tourists because I worked at an ice cream shop. Um, So uh, one of those time-honored things you do on the summer vacation. (laughs) But, you know, I was there. Um, 
not stuck there. I wouldn't say that because I did like that job and, and my bosses and coworkers. So I didn't feel stuck, but certainly a different experience. And so I was had a lot of contact with Taurus that way, but really never befriended any Taurus or had um, deep interactions with them. But it was clear that was a big part of the experience was um, something so drastically different from, say, New York City or Philadelphia. And, I mean, we used to kind of, you know, make fun of or just roll our eyes at tourists sort of fascinated by the so-called wildlife that for us was much more domesticated, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, like we certainly had wildlife. We had bears that would come up. You know, we lived in pretty remote, even within the Poconos, pretty remote parts because there is like a downtown area that's a little bit denser, um, but we always lived outside of that. And we had bears that would walk up our driveway and we had um, we had turkeys, like a turkey mound that they just hung out on and mm-hmm. um, these sorts of things. So there was some, there were some animals that were maybe even um, felt a little bit wilder even to us. But yeah, so we would just find it amusing that tourists would find things like foxes or, you know, <laughs> um, um, deer, like really fascinating and even even frightening, right? Like these things that you're not used to seeing are often scary, even if there isn't much reason to be afraid of them. You know, I wasn't taking ad- as much advantage of what surrounded me as I would at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, so in some sense, I think the people who are coming in maybe appreciated it more than I did because it was such a stark difference from their day-to-day reality. Um, but of course, like most tourist destinations, it had its very uh, d- uh, pretty detrimental effects, right? All that tourism. Right, the development and the trash and the traffic. And- yeah, traffic and all of that. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward to what you're doing now. Um, so. What are the environmental humanities and and how did you come to focus your work within that field? Yeah, so the environmental humanities, I mean, it really encompasses a, a cluster of academic disciplines like history and literary studies and religious studies and anthropology. Um, often it can capture the arts too, creative arts. Um, but really the that academic cluster aside, um, it's it's really the the impetus behind the environmental humanities is a recognition that we can't understand human relationships to the more than human or nature as we you know typically call it. We really can't understand that through scientific or policy or economic um, approaches alone. That we need to. Um, also understand the cultural aspects of that. We need to understand the artistic aspects of human relationships to nature. Um, so that's one dimension of that. Like if we are going to understand human relationships to nature, which vary over time and across cultures, we really can't just rely on um, some quantitative um, analyses. But another dimension, I think, looking forward is if thinking especially of environmental issues, challenges, disasters, we also need those 
cultural, historical, and artistic understandings if we are going to really address these challenges, especially in an equitable manner. Um, that, you know, thinking about the history of, for example, um, climate policy, you know, or thinking about the history of colonialism when we are thinking about how to respond to climate crisis today, you know, we need those historical dimensions. If we're going to move people, and this we is variable, right? right. Like it's not that there's a uniform um, across the environmental humanities. There's certainly not a uniform um, um, outcome that people have in mind. But if you're thinking about responses to, say, climate crisis or extinction, whatever it might be, um, that you need to also marshal all that um, cultural representation, all that um, artistic expression bring to the conversation, because that's really what moves people. It's what helps people imagine other futures and also to reflect on what brought us to the present. So it's really, um, you know, historical, cultural, and artistic and expressive. And within the cultural, I also think of, you know, sp spiritual and religious dimensions of environmental relation and responses. Right. Um, you asked me how I came to this. Um, I was an English major as an undergraduate and then took some time not in school. But when I went back to graduate school, I didn't know that that would be a focus. Um, I actually thought I had lived in Portland, Oregon, and living there had become much more attuned to environmentalism, largely of an urban nature, but not necessarily exclusively. Um, and also just became much more of an outdoors person, camping, um, backpacking, hiking, all of those things. Um, but I thought that was a part of my personal and political life and not part of my academic or intellectual right. life. Right. But um, midway or so through my time in graduate school, you know, you need to define your dissertation. And I really had two paths I was considering. And one was just, was finding a way to merge my personal interest and commitments to environmentalism with my academic life. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, actually. Um, I didn't have coursework in that area, but there was um, uh, my advisor and a professor Ursula Heisa, um, that is her, she's really a um, one of the most prominent people in the field of environmental humanities. So she was, she was at Stanford where I went to grad school. So I certainly had someone to guide me, which she did um, amazingly. But yeah, it was, it was a question for me of whether to keep certain spheres of my life separate or to try to bring them together. And I decided to bring them together. And was that was that a good decision <laughs> in retrospect? Well, the, like the or the I made that decision because I thought that could carry me through some of those hard and dark times of being a graduate student. Um, like to sort of think about my commitments beyond the academic sphere. But it is challenging um, in that it can feel like everything is a part of everything. <laughs> um, right, right. And, you know, activism or serving on advisory groups or whatever it might be outside of the academic world and suddenly it's not at all separate, right? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So I don't know. I think it served me well. <laughs> there are weeks and days where it can feel, um, yeah, like there is no outside. Well, I can feel the passion of it in how you write and what you write. So I think that's, you know, that's definitely the positive side of it. So your first book is called Ecosickness in Contemporary U.S. Fiction. So can you tell me what is ecosickness? Yeah, so that idea is, it's, it's really capturing how often um, environmental degradation or change and bodily um, damage or change, how often those things go together. So there were a number of writers I was noticing, and I, I talk about Leslie Marmon Silko and Richard Powers, uh, David Foster Wallace, among others, in their writing, you know, they are taking stock of environmental damage in most cases in the literature that I was examining. And mm -hmm. at the same time, they're taking account of all of the transformations to bodies that are happening in the 21st century. And you know, I think in a more scientific register or even a more maybe environmental justice register, we often think of these as causal relationships, right? So there's a toxin that um, a polluting industry is releasing into the water and people consume that and then they experience maybe cancer or neurological change or, um, you know, infertility or reproductive changes. I think that causal relationship between the environment and the body is pretty prominent in our thinking of, of environmental health. But a lot of these authors weren't thinking so directly causally. It was more, they're interested in how um, we actually can conceptualize the environment and what's happening to it in terms of the body and a body mm -hmm. that's sick rather than a healthy body. Mm -hmm. you know, back in the 19th century in the U.S. Um, with some of the uh, white male environment, like proto or early environmentalists like John Muir, mm -hmm. um, um, Henry David Thoreau, you know, that relationship from, between the environment and the body was also often one of health mm -hmm. and um, robustness and, you know, getting out into nature and climbing mountains and, you know, um, sort of overcoming some of the challenges. But in the 21st century, late 20th century and 21st century, certainly that still exists, but we often have um, an understanding of the relationship between the body and the environment through, through sickness or damage right. of some kind. Right. So the book is like tracking how really that phenomenon that it exists and also then how it manifests very formally, artistically in a set of novels and memoirs. Yeah, and you mentioned, you mentioned Rachel Carson as well, who's one of my favorite writers. Um, yeah. And she's, she's known as a nonfiction writer, but um, I, it made me think of, of the opening of Silent Spring, which is kind of written like fiction. I think you even referred to it that way. Um, and so I wanted to read just a, a quick mm -hmm. section of that because I thought maybe I would, I'd be curious to hear how you relate this to this idea of ecosickness. Mm -hmm. So this is from the opening chapter in Silent Spring called The Fable of Tomorrow. So Rachel Carson writes, there was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? 
Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. So how does this, how does this passage in this book relate to this larger body of, of eco-sickness literature? You know, in, in this example, there's, there's sickness in the body of the bird, not the body of a human, but later in the book, she talks about it in the body of humans. Rachel Carson is just an amazing writer. I mean, she's certainly probably most popularly known for Silent Spring, but her writings on the ocean are just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And she calls that the fable for a reason. So she's already marking it as some, you know, somewhat fictional, but of course, fables always point us to deeper truths. Um, right. So, but Carson is really inspirational to me in that project of eco-sickness, but also um, she's really inspirational for thinking about this relationship between the environment and the body through through illness, through um, rapid transformations that were unforeseen. Um, but that, I also think that what's so, I mean, again, there's no causality in that opening, right? The rest of the book is explaining the mechanisms that, and the sources of the the death um, and disruption of bird populations, among other animals, including humans. But in that opening, right, it's this more evocative feeling of of the consequences. Like there's something out of joint here, right? There's there's no more bird song. We don't maybe yet know why, but right. we know that that's a problem. And I mean, I think one of the reasons that's so important for thinking about eco sickness. Um, or, you know, environmental health outside of strict causalities. Um, that is like something that you can conclusively prove through empirical studies, scientific research data, all of that. I, I think it's important to think outside of those because it takes a long time and sometimes it's even impossible to pin down causalities. Right. Um, and that feels really comforting, like especially when you want redress you want blame, you want compensation, you want a quick solution. But even before you get there, like to feel that something is wrong and not to ignore it, um, like that's that's something that that opening, I think, really does powerfully as a as a an entree to the rest of the book, and like certainly does for my project of eco sickness. Like these authors aren't trying to directly explain how, say, um, depression results from a toxin. It's more thinking about, you know, a toxic environment more broadly and how they coexist and have similar mechanisms and manifestations. Right. Well, you know, Rachel Carson fits into the next thing I want to talk to you about as well. You, you know, I think one thing that makes her so powerful is she's she's a scientist who really who's been trained as a scientist and really knows the science, and she's a brilliant writer, which is a, a, a really rare combination. Um, and and I love what you say in the opening of your book about the importance of literary and humanistic knowledge. You talk about how science illiteracy is no longer an option for humanists. But at the same time, you flip that to argue that narrative illiteracy is no longer an option for scientists or anyone who wants to confront environmental issues. Can you talk about what you mean here? Yeah, so um, 
And that's where that that idea of complementarity comes in too, right? Like meeting you know, sort of both sides coming to a middle <laughs> more than anyone abandoning uh, a side that is science or or art and narrative. Um, um, there's this amazing book that I write about in my second book, InfoWelm, um, called Objectivity by Lorraine Dastin and Peter Gallison, who are um, historians of science. But they talk about um, epistemic values, which I know epistemic is a is a, a jargony term, but basically the values that um, are privileged in a knowledge enterprise like science. And so, you know, things like objectivity, um, things like quantification, causality, um, universality, things like that. So also understanding those aspects of science are, I think, part of scientific literacy. But then on the other, you know, the complement there, when I say that narrative literacy is so important, is I think goes back to earlier in our conversation that I, I've said this a million times, so I kind of like chuckle when I say it like um, data and facts alone are not going to, as you said earlier, move the needle. Um, it, it's really through storytelling, um, understanding the stories um, and all dimensions of the stories that move people or don't move people right. to think about and act on an issue. And that can often be thought of as science communication, but it's so much more than that. Which because, is not a very exciting term. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there are people doing great work with that and using the arts for that. Um, so I don't want to dismiss that way of thinking about things, but um, there's so much communication um, in the way it can be understood sort of um, – I guess in in layperson's terms, can seem like a unidirectional. Like we have this bit of information, we need to find the best way to get it out into people's ears and eyes, right? But really, I think narrative just introduces so much more complexity that there there really isn't anything unidirectional or or predictable about the way stories affect people, right? So. So narrative literacy is not only, it's like similar to scientific literacy. It's like, well, what are the stories already out there? And like, how can those be um, understood as providing a foundation for environmental relations and also thinking about environmental futures? But then it also means understanding how narratives work and they aren't often so predictable or... um, as one might think. Yeah, and you say, you write in in your book that particular tropes, metaphors, and narrative patterns carry an affective charge that can activate environmental care when empirical studies alone cannot. Um, and so if I'm reading this correctly, you're, you're not saying that any kind of storytelling can activate environmental care, but that particular kinds of storytelling can. And um, I just wonder if you could talk a bit more about that and, and maybe even describe some of these tropes, metaphors, and narrative patterns more specifically that, that you're thinking about. Yeah. In eco-sickness, one of the things I was interested in, as I said, their affect or emotion, the way that narratives generate and represent emotions and how that does a lot of work on its own to um, to affect how people are understanding an environmental re- problem and reacting to it. So, for example, um, um, the emotion of anxiety. Like, this is a really powerful emotion in 
environmental representation of disasters or future disasters or, you know, climate change in general, uh, you know, cultivating, generating anxiety is something that a lot of, um, you know, dystopian or apocalyptic environmental narratives will do. Right. Makes us anxious, makes us uncomfortable, makes us um, uncertain. You know, anxiety is much more amorphous. Like there might be sources for it, but it becomes this like pervasive, nebulous thing that's very hard to like solve or um, surmount. So anxiety is this emotion that I think is quite familiar from uh, representations of environmental damage or crisis. And I look at um, Leslie Marmon Silko's novel, Almanac of the Dead, which is a very, very large, sprawling and, and challenging novel because it does depict a lot of the the horrors of uh, colonialism mm-hmm. and um, and oppression and violence against indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. But this is, it's a novel that really cultivates anxiety. And so I was interested in that as certainly um, a powerful way to help people think about problems, right? And to recognize them as problems. But then what happens to that emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. is this an emotion? It might lead to care or to awareness, but is it an emotion you can act on? Mm -hmm. Or is it an emotion that actually shuts you down because it's so... um, because it is so powerful, pervasive, but also overwhelming. Um, so I think about, you know, those, and I also think about an emotion like wonder, you know, very different, mm-hmm. like has a lot of positive associations with it. But, you know, what what are some of the environmental understandings and actions that an emotion like wonder can produce? Yeah, and another emotion you discuss is optimism. And, and you have this wonderful discussion of of the split between environmental writers and activists on this question of optimism. Of optimism, so does hope fuel our ability to address ecological crisis, or does hope hinder our ability to confront very daunting realities? Um, or do these contradictory thoughts happen all at the same time? So here's one of my favorite lines from your conclusion. <laughs> smart grids, smart phones, and smart cars alone won't deliver us from our dumb ways of living so much as perpetuate them. So um, can you talk a bit about this complicated, contradictory idea of optimism? I think we often hear it with uh, more through the, and you said this a moment ago, through the idea of hope. Because, um, I mean, Often we conflate hope and optimism, but some people like to keep them separate. Like that optimism can be taken as an even more, um, a stronger expectation that things will just work out okay no matter what. Right. Um, Whereas hope is often, I think, a little more mixed for at least within environmentalist circles. But hope is this emotion that I think drives you even if you don't know or even if you thinks things will not work out okay. Um, There's a, I think it's, well, it's an anticipatory emotion, as they say, much like anxiety, like you're sort of looking out into the future and imagining what that future might hold. And you, I think what's, what's useful about the reason, at least I 
remain hopeful, even though I do not remain optimistic, I guess, is um, that it's something that can can drive you in the present, right? Even if what you look at on the other side in the future, you're not really sure that right. it will all work out okay. Sort of in the day-to-day reminds you that there's something you care about that you want to preserve or improve. Um, and so I think that for me, hope is about care regardless of the outcome um, and just how it, it motivates people to to stay engaged, to you know, form communities around issues, um, and to act even if they're not certain that action is going to make any any great changes. Right. Yeah. Well, within the environmental film world, I hear funders and others talk all the time about the importance of hopeful narratives, and, and they want they want films to go in positive directions and, and make people feel empowered to act rather than hopeless um, or, you know, solely produce anxiety like what you were saying before. But, you know, I, I don't disagree with that, but I, I question it. You, you know, I think of a book like David Wallace Wells' The Uninhabitable Earth. You know, th- that is a very anxiety-producing book. Um, <laughs> it came out, what, last year? Um, but it may be had some of the biggest impact on the environmental conversation last year, broadly, I'd say. Um, I, I feel like that those modes of anxiety and fear and danger, you know, can be very motivating also. Um, so, you know, it makes me think, do we need to hunt for a particular emotion or do we need to cover the range of emotions? Yeah. Yeah, and I want to, um, like, uh, I think in some comments earlier, um, it might sound like I was saying there's something conclusive or definite, like, oh, we'll just find the right narrative, find the right emotion, and that will do X, Y, or Z, whatever your X, Y, or Z are. But I don't think that, yeah, it's not (laughs) one of the, I think, important Um, aspects of emotional and narrative literacy is that the trajectories are not so certain. Um, You might think you're writing a hopeful ending, or you might think (laughs) you're cultivating um, concern, actionable concern, when in fact you're deadening people are um, overwhelming. You just, nothing is so predictable in in how people respond to a story. there's often a desire to have a hopeful ending without a recognition of what has come before, right. as if you end on a certain note and that um, that, that is a teleology or, or an end point um, that the whole narrative is driving toward. But actually, we have responses to the, you know, everything that came before, <laughs> that the an ending can't necessarily... Um, compensate for or redirect. So I think there's also that tendency to think like if you end on hope, something is accomplished. um, (laughs) That um, I mean, I often use the phrase cocktail of emotions in my writing. I'm sure I used it in eco-sickness because I I do now for sure. Um, Because it is is this blend of, of things that, you know, 
just like when you're making cocktail if you, or if you don't drink, you're baking. Like you wouldn't know from those ingredients, you, you know, what necessarily would result. And often not the same thing does result. Um, even if the ingredients are, you know, you start from the same recipe and it's not the right. same outcome. <laughs> <laughs> so the title of your second book is Infowhelm. Um, that's one of those words that I never heard before, but as soon as I heard it, I instantly thought I knew what it meant. <laughs> so, oh, good. <laughs> when I was first uh, shopping around that title, like most people would say that, but some people would say, oh, but why these, this right, wonky, right. weird word? But, <laughs> so, so does it mean what we think yeah. it means? <laughs> and how, how does it, you know, and specifically why it was related to our ecological state of being. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Yes, and I should say, I did not coin the word, though I think I came up with it and then looked to see if other people had used right. it. And, you know, you never know how words um, worm their way into your brain and you don't even know they're there. But yes, that word has been out there, but not not so prominent as words like info fatigue or whatever it might be. Um, but it is what you think it means, which is like being overwhelmed by a lot of information. Um, and the way I saw that pertaining to environmental issues and actually the conclusion to eco-sickness is a bridge, somewhat of a bridge into infowhelm in thinking about how does data feel when we consume it, um, especially those of us in you know, um, more privileged or wealthy media consumers in the West, in America, where you can be deluged by right. news, Twitter, you know, post feeds, whatever, <laughs> all the time. Um, and that there's really, like, what does it feel like to have all of that data, all of that information coming at you when it's not even really bidden. It's not like you're always even looking for it. And so, um, so Infowhelm sort of acknowledges that phenomenon that so much is coming at us. And in the environmental sphere, I think, I mean, especially if you are an environmentalist, you pay attention to these issues, but really, even if you're you know, you're not. There's a lot, just so much like information coming at us about, say, um, the percentage of extinct mammals, right? How many mammal uh, species are extinct or bird species are extinct? Um, all the data about climate crisis, whether it's like warming temperatures, um, ocean acidification, you know, how much of a, the, um, ice sheet has melted, you know, it's all, right. all this data. It's like, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, what do you do with that? I mean, what do you do with that? Not only as a way to understand the phenomena at maybe, a, you know, objective or straightforward level, but what do you do with that emotionally if you're an artist or right. communicator? Um, I don't just look at artworks in that book. Like, what do you do as a way to convey that information, um, and what are you also evoking when you when you do that? And that's where the sort of like history and traditions right. of science piece comes in. And you talk about you talk about a deficit model of climate communication, which you say holds that the public's lack of information and comprehension is the primary obstacle to environmental action. So. What's wrong with this deficit model? And why has an abundance of available environmental information not led to an abundance of environmental action? 
uh, that deficit model, um, you know, sociologists, psychologists, uh, science communications people, communications people have have really talked about this a lot. And it's an idea that, you know, the problem is just that people don't have all of the facts. And if they just saw the complete picture of what's happening, say, with climate change, or if it's something like um, um, toxic environments and public health, if they just had all the information, then surely, you know, we would collectively act to make changes or individually. Like, you know, well, surely you would choose to drive less or fly less or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, that model of like people are vessels <laughs> and you just fill them with information and, you know, the outcome will be predictable or maybe a factory model, right? You like input some ingredients and then there would be this output. That just doesn't doesn't work. As you said, I think at the beginning of this conversation, you know, the so much, there's a lot more to know, of course, but so much of the the scientific phenomena of climate change, like changes to our, our geophysical processes resulting from carbon or um, methane in the atmosphere, a lot of that is known um, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. it's known enough, right? Um, and yet here, here we are in America, but really globally here we are too. And so we need to account for all of the other factors that come into play um, when people are making decisions at individual and communal governmental levels when they're making when they're responding to that information. I mean, there's certainly an element, and I don't even get into this too much because I think there is there's been a lot of work about like denialism. There are books like and studies like Merchants of Doubt that just show like there's right, there's people denying the information and clouding it. But that aside, it's still not a direct like give people information and they respond this way. So we need to understand the emotional factors, issues of race and class and um, economics and geography and sex, uh, sexuality, gender, all of these things um, that really play uh, play such an important role um, when people are responding to that information. And I think that's where where the arts and um, different forms of cultural representation are are so important. Yeah, and I love in this book how you know you're looking at these writers and artists who incorporate scientific information into their work, um, but the way they do it addresses both the limits and the necessity of knowledge derived, derived from science. Um, and one thing you write is artists are key players not only in making sense of climate crisis, but in making meaning from it. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how making sense and making meaning are related but different. Um, the sense part might be more like um, that picture uh, that maybe uh, a science teacher or someone wants to paint of just what are the what are the processes at play here? So what does happen when we put so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere? What does get affected? Um, That's maybe, you know, making sense of it. Because it is, I mean, it's not as if climate crisis is like straightforward, right? It's like terribly complex. So there's that sense making, just like, what is this thing? And how did it happen? And what is happening to, um, to the natural world and the social world in response? 
But then the the meaning is, okay, so what do people do with that 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 knowledge? Um, how does it become relevant to their daily lives? How does it not become relevant to their daily lives? How does it become, um, even if it feels irrelevant to their their lives, how does it become a matter of concern um, if it about other people's lives and other beings' lives right. that might be affected? Um, so that, yeah, the meaning is just what we, I think what we do with that or different groups do with that information um, and how we respond to it. And let's talk about um, the God's eye view from aerial photographs and satellite imagery for a minute. Um, in Infowelm, you say, in the 21st century, the air is the space from which millions access new places and perspectives on the planet. And this connects back to the first photographs taken of Earth from space, which emerged as the modern environmental movement was gaining momentum. And many people have argued that these photographs themselves helped catalyze the environmental movement, most famously Earth Rise in 1968 and the Blue Marble in 1972, when astronauts rather than satellites were actually taking the pictures. Um, and for the first time, many people saw the Earth not as vast and limitless, but as uh, finite and fragile, floating in vast emptiness, and they wanted to protect it from harm. And you explore how literary and visual artists use aerial techniques to point out some of the problematic histories of the aerial perspective, and at the same time, show how it can be used to reorient our relationship to the Earth and ecological crisis. Can you talk a little bit about um, about this tension that emerges in these in these works? Yes, yeah, certainly. So the I mean, yeah, the view from space has been analyzed quite extensively in environmental studies. Um, and so this, you know, my thinking about it is extending off of that work. And there, it, it is often thought of as this catalyst environmentalism, but then uh, there's this, also this thought of how it is a, a position of mastery or control, right? Like, even if you see the fragility of the earth, it can also um, instigate a feeling of, um, well, this is something I can take care of, which is a good sentiment, but also this is something I have some control or some mastery over. Um, so that's where that God's eye view, I mean, Donna Haraway is a very famous thinker about what that that view, that God's eye perspective entails, this idea of mastery, um, objectivity as well, authority, those sorts of sentiments that are, you know, can be quite problematic um, for, you know, not only what one does to the environment, but the, you know, how it impacts different um, communities as well. And so the artists, I, I was looking, and not just artists, I'm also activists that I was looking at, they absolutely acknowledge the affordances, you know, of the aerial, like how important, how powerful it is, um, how much it moves people and grabs people's attention. I mean, uh, one of the activist groups I talk mm -hmm. about is this group called Sky Truth, which uses aerial imagery to sort of like to get purchase on illegal forms of extraction or the damages of extraction. They were really important during the Deepwater Horizon spill and in in seeing how the government was and BP were under reporting 
the extent of the spill. So there are all these things that the aerial vantage point can really do to, um, you know, hold people to account to see what's really what is happening on the ground. So these artists and activists, they acknowledge that. They don't want to say like, oh, the the aerial is, I think a term I use is like, they don't want to, they know they can't um, purify the aerial of its problems, but they want to still use it at the same time. And so they deploy it in this way that's very, I talk about it as being very self-referential. So instead of thinking of the aerial as like a clear window onto the world, they they show how it's um, what what the smudges are, I guess, on that window. So how the aerial aerial perspectives are deeply tied to um, military histories. They're um, often a privileged perspective that's owned or controlled by um, government and corporate partnerships. Um, it's also the technologies that um, give one purchase on um, from from the air or from space are also very um, have their own histories of militarization, corporate control, colonial control. And so they use these tools and at the same time recognize those histories. And those histories are sort of like reminders that, this is not an objective perspective, right? That there's so many, there's so many interested parties or forms of um, oppression and manipulation that go along with those perspectives. So the aerial is really important to talk about it because it's not something we want to get rid of or not use if we are environmentalists or um, environmental artists. But it's certainly something you want to be aware of just what its histories are, what its uses have been, and how those really travel with the technology whenever you're using them. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I love this idea of co-opting the tools um, for beneficial reasons. Um, But at the same time, it makes me think of that famous Audre Lorde uh, declaration that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I mean, that term master, right, evokes slavery. It evokes patriarchy. It evokes a lot of a lot of things, I think, for, for Lord. Um, and for my study, certainly evokes, um, especially colonial histories, but it also just this general desire for mastery that often is comes along with um, the scientific enterprise or thinking about solutions to environmental problems. So that that phrase or, you know, that quote was certainly um, evocative and sort of traveling with me. And I do think, I mean, there are some who would say absolutely like she's she's right, right? You do not use the thing. Like if you're an artist, for example, you do not use a form, you don't use a medium, you don't use a, um, you don't use a tool or an instrument that is so tainted by, um, you know, th- right. the very thing that you want to fight against. But I think that's quite hard. <laughs> it, um, I yeah, mean, well, it, it, I think that also, it also taps into this, this plague of purity, I think, that infects a lot of progressive movements where, you know, this assessment of any particular thing or object or perspective 
is it pure or is it not pure? And if it's not pure, we have to stay away from it. And and that's a that's a that's a really complicated and difficult um, way to assess the world, and kind of self delusional in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think of what um, at what scale are we are we talking of the tool? Like for example, the novel, right? Um, I mean, you have something like the novel or poetry or documentary film, but then you know, you get more granular and you might say like the sonnet or the realist novel, or <laughs> I know less about documentary films, so I'm not going to have as good examples here, but um, sort of right. like an interview based or a observational. Um, right. So, you know, you also, when you're thinking about tools, I think they're, and I'm now like maybe deviating a bit from what Lord was talking about, but thinking about the representational and the aesthetic um, sphere, you know, there are, I think, a lot of different levels at which you can think about that. Um, that, you know, are, do you want to say like the tool of the novel or the tool of poetry, the tool of documentary or photography is sort of tainted for some reason, so you avoid it entirely? Or do you think about some of the the more particular forms that you want to avoid or, in fact, like manipulate and call attention to be really self-reflexive about the problems with them as you try to reorient them. Um, and that was what, you know, I argue um, activists and artists. So I mentioned Sky Truth as an in activist group using the satellite imagery um, in a very self-reflexive way that calls attention to the limits of the technology itself. But then I also look at a uh, photographer named Fuzzel Sheikh who um, takes aerial, so not satellite, but um, aerial photography of the Negev Desert in Israel, thinking about the, the colonial oppression and manipulation of the environment in that region. I mean, he's actually interested in the um, displacement of Bedouin peoples and... Um, and that, I mean, he is certainly using aerial photography. He's using photography itself and acknowledges through his use of angle. He takes an oblique angle and the way he uses texture and shows texture and the layering of these pieces as in a way to sort of thwart our sense of, um, of visibility and transparency. You know, if we think of the often the aerial and the satellite image as offering this window or like offering an objective or transparent direct view of something, he's sort of using that tool of the aerial to show how it is incomplete, but certainly shows us a lot of things at the same time. And and then going back to your point about knowledge versus feeling, like evoking a lot of feeling in that practice too. Right. Right. And back to this idea of sky truth versus ground truth, you know, um, Fuzzle Shakes, I mean, the vast majority of, of his work is, is portrait photography of, you know, refugees and displaced people. Um, so, yes, he's bringing in that element of sky truth, but, you know, the vast majority of the work he's doing is ground truth. So there's something about contextualizing all these tools with other tools that can make them, I think, more meaningful, less problematic, less tied to an oppressive history. And and he writes, I mean, that um, 
his work um, for, it's called the Erasure Trilogy, this photographic project that does have, yeah, portraiture as well as aerial photography. He then collaborated with um, A.L. Weissman, who's an architectural theorist and known for what's called forensic architecture in the human rights um, domain. And they collaborated in they, on this book called um, Conflict Shoreline, which incorporates the photographs, but then they talk about how they are constantly moving between the ground and the air. So, you know, the aerial leads back to the ground, the ground leads to the aerial or even the subterranean. Um, and so that it is this um, constant moving between positions. And that's something I also argue uh, for and uh, demonstrate in that part of the book that it's an argument for a multiplicity of perspectives rather than sort of the perfect or the uh, objective perspective. So in InfoWelm, you talk about the new natural history. These are artworks, as you say, that um, speak the same tongue as Euro-Western natural history but tell a story of ecological deficit. Can you talk about why these works interest you? Yeah, so I that was um, a section of the book that really arose from just being a reader and a, a watcher or looker-adder of, um, of environmental art and literature. So I just, I started to notice that a lot of contemporary writers, so those writing and, and artists um, producing work in the last 20 to 30 years were harking back to these traditions of natural history. And so those traditions, um, I mean, we know often many of us probably have know or have been to natural history museums. Um, and it's this practice of like classifying the natural world, um, naming it, uh, putting it into categories, displaying it. Um, and so things like, if you've heard of Linnaeus, <clears throat> very famous person who, uh, naturalist who created the system of binomial nomenclature for naming plants and animals, um, all of these practices of basically ordering and classifying the natural world that arose during the Enlightenment period in, in Europe and then in America. Um, and these were like responses to like greater access to the variety of things on the planet because of colonial um, um, expeditions and endeavors. So it's like, oh, you know, you're in Latin America, for example, and suddenly there are all these new plants, animals, and of course peoples, because the naturalist enterprise applies to, to peoples as well in this period. And so it's it's a way of responding to that abundance by ordering it, um, a way of understanding it and and sort of containing it. Now, there's always slippage out of that container that um, are really fascinating as well. Um, so artists today were like referring back to and, and reproducing those practices. So for example, you might have a poet who um, um, I write about this poet, Juliana Spar, who has a poem in which um, it interspersed within the lines are the names of species that are on the endangered and threatened list of species for New York. And so they are, these artists are using those techniques of representation and and um, classification or ordering, but as a way to think through uh, a loss of environmental abundance. So whether it's extinction or 
um, uh, deforestation or radical change changes to the land through um, mining or dams, things like that. So they use those techniques, but as a way to get purchase on what is happening today and to really think through the the histories of Enlightenment thought and colonial um, um, colonialism that have produced the environmental degradation happening today. You wrote an article for Yes Magazine that explores the question of population control and limiting the number of children we have as an approach to addressing the climate crisis. And you discuss how readily calls for reproductive limits touch what you call the third rails of modern environmentalism, racism, eugenics, xenophobia, and even death dealing. For you, what does it look like to deal appropriately with the question of population control outside of the racist and xenophobic history of those things in in the environmental movement? Or, Or maybe how can we acknowledge or address the racist and xenophobic elements, past or present, of the environmental movement while still confronting the difficult question of reducing our global population? So that piece is actually, well, it's part of a, uh, a new thing I'm starting, but actually one where I don't know the answer to that question um, and don't even know um, how to bring these two conversations together, if they should be. Because, I mean, one of the things is not to say population control. So. Um, you know, controlling population has, at least in the environmental context, in the context of global development, um, colonialism, it's always been about controlling certain populations. It's been about advancing white supremacy, right. and often it's been about um, reducing the fertility or uh, of of people who have disabilities. So really, like the whole, and I'm not the first to say this, there are a lot of people have talked about like the very phrase population control um, can't but evoke all of that. Um, And so, I mean, that's, I say a lot of people have talked about it, but I think it is not something like we all talk about. And so it's important to to acknowledge that. And, And that history is very tied up in environmentalism. Um both past, like reaching back to the 19th century and further and and more present, um, thinking that, you know, the earth has limits um, or um, certain ecosystems have limits and therefore we need to prevent people from coming into those spaces or limit the number of people um, reproducing in those spaces to preserve them. But again, that is always about some people, some communities, some races, some types of people being preserved at the expense of others. And so that that whole like population control is just like tainted, <laughs> right? Um, so the, the question though is, there are a lot of people who think about the relationship between their own reproductive, um, their own reproduction and the fate of the environment. And this can be everything from, um, I look around me and things don't look good, so why should I bring another being into a world that is so shattered and whose future I don't know? But then there are some people who think about, again, going back to causality, like, well, if I put another person on this planet, um, 
Will they be, you know, consuming more resources, emitting more carbon dioxide? Will I just be contributing even more to the problems that we're facing? And then there's certainly like other other ways pe- people think about this relationship between the environment and reproduction. Um, and that can include actually, you know, populations who have experienced genocide or near genocide or whose, um, um, whose ability to thrive on an environment has been, and ability to reproduce have been significantly harmed. And so in that case, like having children is actually can be a response to that in the affirmative, you know, sort of like creating, shoring up those traditions, right. um, creating that sense of, of connection between place and community. Um, so I think for me, if I continue to think about this, um, that framing of reproductive justice is um, is how I would think about it. And so that's not about limiting, you know, deciding there's a, a limited capacity on the earth and we need to stick to those limits by curtailing um, cur- curtailing reproduction but really thinking about the varieties of responses to having children, but also forming different kinds of family or kinship relationships in response to environmental degradation and particularly climate climate crisis. Because um, that reproductive justice framework is much more about thinking about people's um, bodily self-determination, thinking about that there is no one right family there is no one right um, so-called number of people that we're, we're seeking, but really curating the conditions for thriving for uh, the widest variety of, of people and families. Yeah, well, I see how connected it is to your other work in this sense of looking at something that is very tainted from the past, um, you know, whether it be aerial photography or... Um, classification, you know, natural history and classification and and interrogating that. Do we need to reject that because it's tainted or do we need to, to you know, reorient it and use it in a different way with an awareness of, you know, how problematic it's been in the past? And one element of your essay that jumps out at me is your note about um, Project Drawdown where they say, you know, two of the most effective things we can do to deal with the climate crisis globally are to provide family planning um, universally and to increase education of girls. Um, And those two things, you know, shift much more towards the rights of women rather than the control of women, which is so much of what the history of population control has been. Have you thought about it in those terms? The way I thought of the continuity of this work from past work was, um, or one way was actually probably more at a sort of like methodological level to be nerdy about it, which is, um, you know, my work in eco-sickness really venturing into um, medical discourse, um, the medical humanities as it's called, and then also my my interest in environmental issues. So I sort of saw it as like a return to some of those 
confluences of like the medical and the environmental, the bodily. Um, but I can see like I like the, I like this continuity you're finding between like what are you know these legacies of colonialism, of the Enlightenment, of racism, enslavement, like they um, how they really travel in um, environmental scientific and environmentalist discourse in ways that we don't, um, some of us can too easily forget or like think that it's a part of the past or, or just discard entirely. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I like, I like how you're drawing that connect. It's often other people who see connections <laughs> that you cannot see. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually, it's through our conversation today that I connected that actually, um, which is interesting. And I'm going to step back to Info one for one second, but I wanted to ask you to see what your first thought was. So I love this term you use, the coming of mind plot, which is a play off of the coming of age plot. Um, can you tell me what is a coming of mind plot and how does it relate to climate info whelm? The coming of age novel or movie is something quite familiar, right? Like you have a young person, usually someone at the cusp of adolescence or in adolescence, like coming coming of age, entering into maturity and all of the struggles there. And, you know, often it's about like integrating into society or not, um, or resisting that. And so that is kind of a familiar trope or genre in so many different narratives. And I was interested in how there were some climate narratives where often adults who is having to like come to a sort of an environmental maturation or not, you know, like suddenly comes to have to confront the um, the facts, the data of climate crisis. And one of the um, examples of the like the reason that the text that made me come up with this idea was Barbara Kingsolver's Flight Behavior, um, her novel. And in that case, it's a woman, the protagonist is not versed in any real environmental or climate um, knowledge, but there's this migration of butterflies that erroneously lands in her part of Tennessee. And suddenly she's starting to think about the, the facts, the existence of climate crisis, but this information comes into conflict with all many aspects of her social life, religion, um, her socioeconomic position, her gender, all of these things. And so, yeah, it's this confrontation and integration into uh, a different like knowledge reality and the conflicts that happen and what results from that. I wanted to go back to where we started with you delving into dance as a child in order to make you other than who you are and where you come from. I wonder what that project to remake yourself has led to and how it informs your view of your relationship to the rest of nature and our collective environmental predicament now. I know that's a huge question, but I just wanted you to kind of think through that <laughs> that broad sweep of time to see if you have any thoughts about it. One, well, I guess starting from the more personal side of things, um, I mean, I was a good student as a kid, <laughs> but Nothing like exceptional, I think. Uh, like the the intellectual part of myself, I think I developed more after 
I decided or was kind of forced to see dance as not my future in terms of a profession. And I mean, that was a sad moment for me. Um, and sometimes I still question that choice, even though despite what I wrote or said. Um, but there's there was a certain like opening up, I think. I think like there was something also scary about thinking about being a dancer and how it takes up, it takes so much, it takes so much out of you. It, it does that in the very young years of your life where you need to like, you're mm -hmm. committing to something. It can easily destroy you. And yeah, it destroys most, you know, especially ballet and some of these intent, well, really all of it, but like it does have its damages for sure. And Letting go of that was also sort of like, well, things can develop over time, right? Like, I don't have to know at 14 what I want to do and commit to it so wholeheartedly. Um, and that's sort of like, I mean, I say this to people and that they're like, that's bananas because like, how much commitment does it take to become, you know, get your PhD and become a professor? And like, yeah, absolutely. But there was a lot of... Um, like I didn't know what I wanted to really study in grad when I got to grad school and I I discovered it along the way. And I think that receptivity is really important to me in thinking about not only like my relationship to the world around me, like being out there and being receptive um, to smells and sights and sounds and tastes sometimes, I guess, um, but just also being receptive to you know, different positions on environmental issues, not being dogmatic, not seeking purity, like listening and um, and learning a lot rather than, you know, being so fixed in one's understanding. I don't know. I feel like that's very important for environmental conversations today, even though I have strong opinions and like, you Definitely. know, and, um, you know. Definitely fall on an ideological side and political side. And and do, do you still dance? I do. Um, I come into and out of it a lot more than I used to. And uh, so I really, I stopped in college more or less. And then I came back to it really wholeheartedly for about, you know, 10 years um, and had this amazing teacher and, and community when I lived in San Francisco and one of the upsides in the pandemic, which I know like we're sick of that phrase just as much as all others, is um, I'm able to take ballet classes with my most beloved teacher from my San Francisco days. Um, mm. And, you know, granted from mm -hmm. my living room, which is <laughs> not the way I would prefer to dance. Uh, it's not a very big living room, but it sort of like clicked in my brain like, oh, wait, like I, they're probably offering classes I could take from my living room, so. Well, the other thing that clicks in your mind is this isn't ending anytime soon. Well, that's true. Like, I, I did think about the virtual dance class way at the beginning, and then I was like, I don't want to do that. I love to move. Like, I love to take up space. Like, this is going to be pathetic and yep. confining. <laughs> but then as the months wore on, I was like, well, better than better than nothing. So um, almost to the end here, I've, I have one more kind of big question for you. Why does our struggle to create a more just and ecologically sustainable society need the environmental humanities? Well, take the environmental humanities broadly, which is like thinking about those cultural 
emotional, um, historical relationships to the environment. I mean, I don't see how you could think otherwise, right? Like, um, it's just, there's no way. I mean, I'll take an example of like, you know, conversations about climate reparations. That is like, do certain countries or community, you know, um, states even, do they owe other nations or communities compensation uh, for uh, the damage that those communities are facing? Um, that question, I mean, there's an economic way of thinking about it. There's a, a sort of like quantitative empirical way of thinking about it. Like, well, what are the actual harms to those those people, whether it be health or loss of land or livelihood? Certainly there are those perspectives on it. But so much of this is going to about be thinking about the history of those relationships between countries or communities, thinking about um, just what the whole idea of reparations uh, signifies for people, like in the U.S., certainly means something different with the his legacy of uh, enslavement than it might in another country that doesn't have that same legacy. I mean, all of these are, and also just, you know, how would you tell that story of what what people have experienced and what the future might look like for them? Um, those are all things that you just can't really approach without, whether you call it the environmental humanities, like that's what us professors call ourselves, right? Um, but, you know, you, you might not have that label for yourself, but those kinds of perspectives are just so essential for really any any environmental decision or or relationship that we're thinking about today. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like it's this complicated thing sometimes to hold where we hear these calls for following the science, which I totally agree with. But I, I think a lot of what your work is pointing out is, yes, we need to follow the science, but it also needs to be in the context of, of all this other stuff so that we can make meaning of it and that we can understand what to do with it. Absolutely. In the very early days of the InfoWhelm project, I had, uh, you know, wrote wrote an early chapter and someone said, like, you know, this could sound like you're questioning science, uh, you know, fueling a denialist position or a skeptical position. And that's why I say at many points in, in the book, like, this is about finding those complementarities Finding, um, you know, I, I borrow from a science studies scholar, Sheila Jasanoff, in this idea of paying deference. How much deference do you pay to science? Like, not that you deny it, but where do you acknowledge its its capacities and capabilities? And when do you say, okay, now we have to look at this other thing? Um, so I think that's so important, um, especially now in, or, you know, in the midst of a pandemic or recovering from it in the future. But, but yeah, in so many of the areas we are, are challenged, it is about some degree of deference to science, but acknowledging its limitations. Yeah. And I find it disturbing that at universities, you know, the humanities are suffering terribly in terms of funding and students and, and everything else. Um, and there's this, I feel like there's this sense that, you know, if you understand science or technology or business, you know, that's all you, that's all you need to figure these things out. That's where the solutions lie. But 
it's 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 really dangerous to take that out of the context of the humanities more broadly. Yeah, it's, I mean, one of the, like, really sad um, ironies of my day-to-day life is I spend, you know, I can spend part of my day talking to you uh, or someone else, uh, writing about the importance of the environmental humanities and what it means to me and I think what it can bring to the world. And then part of my day talking to, like, maybe a graduate student just about how there won't there isn't as much appreciation for that i mean which is not to say the only way of doing this work is within an academic context but it's you know it certainly is not where all of the opportunities can be right within humanities disciplines or perspectives um so yeah it's I don't know what would other much smarter, greater minds than, than mine like <laughs> are thinking about how to solve this issue or or right. what to do about this. But um, it's something I live with every day of my life. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Well, people aren't necessarily making a lot of money off the environmental humanities or any humanity humanities for that matter. <laughs> so there's there's always that pull of money in other directions. So I've asked you to bring a quotation to read that's been particularly meaningful on your journey in life. Could you end the show by by reading what you brought and telling the story of its significance to you? Yeah. I think I'll read this one. It's from James Baldwin's novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. And he writes, It's astounding the first time you realize that a stranger has a body. The realization that he has a body makes him a stranger. It means that you have a body too. You will live with this forever and it will spell out the language of your life. And um, absolutely there, he's thinking about race um, and being a black body, a racialized body. And the idea of the stranger is often one of threat. Um, You know, that idea resonates through this quote as much as it also, I think, outside of that, that context, um, or in addition to that context, uh, I think often about how our bodies travel with us, even as they transform. Um, so when he writes, it means that you have a body too. Like, and I actually think about the difference between having and being a body. Um, but this is, it, it's something that transforms. It's something that other people interpret and they impose their interpretations and values on and yet it's something that right is is traveling with you as much as it's um, undergoing those those transformations and manipulations um, and sort of the endurance of this you will live with this forever and it will spell out the language of your life there's something I think there's an idea of entrapment there um, and oppression potentially but also like how the body can spell out the language of your life to me is just so so evocative about especially someone who's interested in movement um, and and like different expressive forms of the body. So I think like all of the registers of that um, just really stuck with me. Um, and you know, so there's some familiarity in that quotation, and there's some you know, some reminders of also, you know, difference given my position as a white woman and the position of the characters and Baldwin himself. Um, So, I mean, 
just one of the yeah, most and, amazing and American writers or writers, period. So also yeah, worth, yeah, James worth mentioning. Amazing. Um, but it, it also makes me think of, you know, being of this world. And, you know, we spend so much time in our heads and dreaming about things far off, things in the future, things in the past. You know, it, it's in a sense, this is like a, a declaration of mindfulness of, of like, you know, be here now. Um, we are of this world. And I, I see some a lot of really profound environmental connections to that quotation as well. Yeah. And also, I think, like, you realize that a stranger has a body. Like, again, I said that can be threatening, right? Like, this, the, the other's body can be quite threatening to you as, mm-hmm. uh, as a Black person, as a woman, as, you know, as anyone, but, like, especially in certain positionalities. Um, but I think it's also a call to account, like you said, like a presence um, that things do affect other people. There are other, you're sharing space, whether that's a room or a, you know, a city or a world with other people. Um, and that, you know, so much ramifies on the body. You know, I think of the body and the mind as, you know, these are one. So, yeah, I think it is, it does have those sort of ecological resonances too. And it connects to your your work in ecosickness in this sense of the parallel between our bodies and and the broader body of the planet you know, makes me think of those things as well. Well, great. James Baldwin is fabulous. Thank you so much for, for bringing him into this conversation and for joining me today, Heather. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, John. This was this was an amazing conversation, tying together threads like sometimes I don't even tie together in my own in my own life. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much to Heather Hauser. Go to our website at chrysalispodcast.org to see the quotation Heather read from James Baldwin and check out a list of her work, including Infowhelm, Environmental Art and Literature in an Age of Data, and Ecosickness in Contemporary U.S. Fiction. Chrysalis is produced and edited by Gabriela Cordova Vivas, with music by Daniel Rodriguez Vivas, designed by Unai Recreo, and mixing by Juan Garcia. Shub Jane is our web developer and assistant editor, and Isabella Nert is our social media producer and assistant editor. If you enjoyed my conversation with Heather, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Contact me anytime at chrysalispodcast.org, where you can also support the project, subscribe to our newsletter, and join the conversation.